This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain, Chapter 20. Rural Italy by Rail. Fumigated, according to law. The Sorrowing Englishman. Night by the Lake of Como. The Famous Lake. Its Scenery. Como compared with Tahoe. Meeting a Shipmate. We left Milan by rail, the cathedral six or seven miles behind us. Vast, dreamy, bluish, snow-clad mountains twenty miles in front of us. These were the accented points in the scenery. The more immediate scenery consisted of fields and farmhouses outside the car, and a monster-headed dwarf and a moustached woman inside it. These latter were not show-people. Alas, deformity and female beards are too common in Italy to attract attention. We passed through a range of wild, picturesque hills, steep wooded cone-shaped with rugged crags projecting here and there, and with dwellings and ruinous castles perched away up toward the drifting clouds. We lunched at the curious old town of Como, at the foot of the lake, and then took the small steamer and had an afternoon's pleasure excursion to this place, Bellagio. When we walked ashore, a party of policemen, people whose cocked hats and showy uniforms would shame the finest uniform in the military service of the United States, put us into a little stone cell and locked us in. We had the whole passenger list for company, but their room would have been preferable, for there was no light, there were no windows, no ventilation. It was close and hot. We were much crowded. It was the black hole of Calcutta on a small scale. Presently a smoke rose about our feet, a smoke that smelled of all the dead things of earth, of all the putrefaction and corruption imaginable. We were there five minutes, and when we got out it was hard to tell which of us carried the vilest fragrance. These miserable outcasts called that fumigating us, and the term was a tame one indeed. They fumigated us to guard themselves against the cholera though we hailed from no infected port. We had left the collars far behind us all the time. However, they must keep epidemics away somehow or other, and fumigation is cheaper than soap. They must either wash themselves or fumigate other people. Some of the lower classes had rather die than wash, but the fumigation of strangers causes them no pangs. They need no fumigation themselves. Their habits make it unnecessary. They carry their preventive with them. They sweat and fumigate all the day long. I trust I am a humble and consistent Christian. I try to do what is right. I know it is my duty to pray for them that despitefully use me, and therefore, hard as it is, I shall still try to pray for these fumigating, macaroni-stuffing organ-grinders. Our hotel sits at the water's edge, at least its front garden does, and we walk among the shrubbery and smoke at twilight. We look afar off at Switzerland and the Alps, and feel an indolent willingness to look no closer. We go down the steps and swim in the lake. We take a shapely little boat and sail abroad among the reflections of the stars. Lie on the thwarts and listen to the distant laughter, the singing, the soft melody of flutes and guitars that comes floating across the water from pleasuring gondolas. We close the evening with exasperating billiards on one of those same old execrable tables. A midnight luncheon in our ample bedchamber, a final smoke in its contracted veranda facing the water, the gardens and the mountains, a summing up of the day's events, 
then to bed with drowsy brains harassed with a mad panorama that mixes up pictures of france of italy of the ship of the ocean of home in grotesque and bewildering disorder then a melting away of familiar faces of cities and of tossing waves into a great calm of forgetfulness and peace after which the nightmare breakfast in the morning and then the lake I did not like it yesterday. I thought Lake Tahoe was much finer. I have to confess now, however, that my judgment erred somewhat, though not extravagantly. I always had an idea that Como was a vast basin of water, like Tahoe, shut in by great mountains. Well, the border of huge mountains is here, but the lake itself is not a basin. It is as crooked as any brook, and only from one quarter to two thirds as wide as the Mississippi. There is not a yard of low ground on either side of it, nothing but endless chains of mountains that spring abruptly from the water's edge, and tower to altitudes varying from a thousand to two thousand feet. Their craggy sides are clothed with vegetation, and white specks of houses peep out from the luxuriant foliage everywhere. They are even perched upon jutting and picturesque pinnacles a thousand feet above your head. Again, for miles along the shores, Handsome country seats, surrounded by gardens and groves, sit fairly in the water, sometimes in nooks carved by nature out of the vine-hung precipices, and with no ingress or egress save by boats. Some have great broad stone staircases leading down to the water, with heavy stone balustrades ornamented with statuary, and fancifully adorned with creeping vines and bright-colored flowers, for all the world like a drop-curtain in a theatre and lacking nothing but long-waisted, high-heeled women and plumed gallants in silken tights coming down to go serenading in the splendid gondola in waiting. A great feature of Como's attractiveness is the multitude of pretty houses and gardens that cluster upon its shores and on its mountain-sides. They look so snug and so homelike, and at eventide, when everything seems to slumber and the music on the vesper bells comes stealing over the water, one almost believes that nowhere else than on the lake of Como can there be found such a paradise of tranquil repose. From my window here in Bellagio I have a view of the other side of the lake now, which is as beautiful as a picture. A scarred and wrinkled precipice rises to a height of eighteen hundred feet. On a tiny bench halfway up its vast wall sits a little snowflake of a church, no bigger than a martin-box, apparently. Skirting the base of the cliff are hundred orange groves and gardens, flecked with glimpses of the white dwellings that are buried in them. In front three or four gondolas lie idle upon the water, and in the burnished mirror of the lake, mountain, chapel, houses, groves, and boats are counterfeited so brightly and so clearly that one scarce knows where the reality leaves off and the reflection begins. The surroundings of this picture are fine. A mile away a grove-plumed promontory juts far into the lake and glasses its palace in the blue depths. In midstream a boat is cutting the shining surface and leaving a long track behind like a ray of light. The mountains beyond are veiled in a dreamy purple haze. Far in the opposite direction a tumbled mass of domes and verdant slopes and valleys bars the lake, and here, indeed, does distance lend enchantment to the view for on this broad canvas sun and clouds and the richest of atmosphere have blended a thousand tints together, and over its surface the filmy lights and showy drift, hour after hour, and glorify it with a beauty that seems reflected out of heaven itself. 
beyond all question this is the most voluptuous scene we have yet looked upon. Last night the scenery was striking and picturesque. On the other side crags and trees and snowy houses were reflected in the lake with a wonderful distinctness, and streams of light from many a distant window shot far abroad over the still waters. On this side, near at hand, great mansions, white with moonlight, glared out from the midst of masses of foliage that lay black and shapeless in the shadows that fell from the cliff above, and down in the margin of the lake every feature of the weird vision was faithfully repeated. Today we have idled through a wonder of a garden attached to a ducal estate, but enough of description is enough, I judge. I suspect that this was the same place the gardener's son deceived the lady of Lyon with, but I do not know. You may have heard of the passage somewhere. A deep veil, shut out by alpine hills from the rude world, near a clear lake margined by fruits of gold and whispering myrtles, glassing softness skies, cloudless, save with rare and roseate shadows, a palace lifting to eternal heaven its marbled walls, from out a glossy bower of coolest foliage musical with birds. That is all very well except the clear part of the lake. It certainly is clearer than a great many lakes, but how dull its waters are compared with the wonderful transparence of Lake Tahoe. I speak of the north shore of Tahoe, where one can count the scales on a trout at a depth of a hundred and eighty feet. I have tried to get this statement off at par here, but with no success. So I have been obliged to negotiate it at fifty percent discount. At this rate I find some takers—perhaps the reader will receive it on the same terms ninety feet instead of one hundred and eighty. But let it be remembered that those are forced terms, sheriff's sale prices. As far as I am privately concerned, I abate not a jot of the original assertion that in those strangely magnifying waters one may count the scales on a trout—a trout of the large kind—at a depth of a hundred and eighty feet, may see every pebble on the bottom, might even count a paper of dray pins. People talk of the transparent waters of the Mexican Bay of Acapulco, but in my own experience I know they cannot compare with those I am speaking of. I have fished for trout in Tahoe, and at a measured depth of eighty-four feet I have seen them put their noses to the bait, and I could see their gills open and shut. I could hardly have seen the trout themselves at that distance in the open air. As I go back in spirit and recall that noble sea, Reposing among the snow-peaks six thousand feet above the ocean, the conviction comes strong upon me again that Como would only seem a bedizened little courier in that august presence. Sorrow and misfortune overtake the legislature that still from year to year permits Tahoe to retain its unmusical cognomen. Tahoe! It suggests no crystal waters, no picturesque shores, no sublimity. Tahoe for a sea in the clouds! a sea that has character and asserts it in solemn calms at times, at times in savage storms, a sea whose royal seclusion is guarded by a cordon of sentinel peaks that lift their frosty fronts nine thousand feet above the level world, a sea whose every aspect is impressive, whose belongings are all beautiful, whose lonely majesty types the deity. Tahoe means grasshoppers. It means grasshopper soup. It is Indian, and suggestive of Indians. They say it is Paiute. Possibly it is Digger. I am satisfied it was named by the Diggers, those degraded savages who roast their dead relatives, then mix the human grease and ashes of bones with tar, 
and gaum it thick all over their heads and foreheads and ears, and go caterwauling about the hills and call it mourning. These are the gentry that named the lake. People say that Tahoe means silver lake, limpid water, falling leaf. Bosh! It means grasshopper soup, the favorite dish of the digger tribe, and of the Paiutes as well. It isn't worth while, in these practical times, for people to talk about Indian poetry. There never was any in them, except in the Fenimore Cooper Indians. But they are an extinct tribe that never existed. I know the noble red man. I have camped with the Indians. I have been on the warpath with them, taken part in the chase with them, for grasshoppers, helped them steal cattle. I have roamed with them, scalped them, had them for breakfast. I would gladly eat the whole race if I had a chance. But I am growing unreliable. I will return to my comparison of the lakes. Como is a little deeper than Tahoe, if people here tell the truth. They say it is eighteen hundred feet deep at this point, but it does not look a dead enough blue for that. Tahoe is one thousand five hundred and twenty-five feet deep in the center, by the state geologist's measurement. They say the great peak opposite this town is five thousand feet high, but I feel sure that three thousand feet of that statement is a good honest lie. The lake is a mile wide here, and maintains about that width from this point to its northern extremity, which is distant sixteen miles. From here to its southern extremity, say fifteen miles, it is not over half a mile wide in any place, I should think. Its snow-clad mountains, one hears so much about, are only seen occasionally, and then in the distance, the Alps. Tahoe is from ten to eighteen miles wide, and its mountains shut it in like a wall. Their summits are never free from snow the year round. One thing about it is very strange. It never has even a skim of ice upon its surface, although lakes in the same range of mountains, lying in a lower and warmer temperature, freeze over in winter. It is cheerful to meet a shipmate in these out-of-the-way places and compare notes with him. We have found one of ours here, an old soldier of the war, who is seeking bloodless adventures and rest from his campaigns in these sunny lands. Colonel J. Heron Foster, editor of a Pittsburgh journal, and a most estimable gentleman. As these sheets are being prepared for the press, I am pained to learn of his decease shortly after his return home. M. T. End of chapter 20 Chapter 21 The Pretty Lago de Lecho A Carriage Drive in the Country Astonishing Sociability in a Coachman Sleepy Land Bloody Shrines the heart of the home of priestcraft, a thrilling medieval romance, the birthplace of Harlequin, approaching Venice. We voyaged by steamer down the Lago de Lecho, through wild mountain scenery and by hamlets and villas, and disembarked at the town of Lecho. They said it was two hours by carriage to the ancient city of Bergamo, and that we would arrive there in good season for the railway train. We got an open barouche and a wild, boisterous driver, and set out. It was delightful. We had a fast team and a perfectly smooth road. There were towering cliffs on our left, and the pretty Lago de Lecho on our right, and every now and then it rained on us. Just before starting, the driver picked up, in the street, a stump of a cigar an inch long, and put it in his mouth. When he had carried it thus about an hour, I thought it would be only Christian charity to give him a light. I handed him my cigar, which I had just lit, and he put it in his mouth, and returned his stump to his pocket. I never saw a more sociable man. 
At least I never saw a man who was more sociable on a short acquaintance. We saw interior Italy now. The houses were of solid stone, and not often in good repair. The peasants and their children were idle, as a general thing, and the donkeys and chickens made themselves at home in drawing-room and bedchamber, and were not molested. The drivers of each and every one of the slow-moving market-carts we met were stretched in the sun upon their merchandise, sound asleep. Every three or four hundred yards, it seemed to me, we came upon the shrine of some saint or other, a rude picture of him built into a huge cross or a stone pillar by the roadside. Some of the pictures of the Saviour were curiosities in their way. They represented him stretched upon the cross, his countenance distorted with agony. From the wounds of the crown of thorns, from the pierced side, from the mutilated hands and feet, from the scourged body, from every hand-breadth of his person streams of blood were flowing. Such a gory, ghastly spectacle would frighten the children out of their senses, I should think. There were some unique auxiliaries to the painting which added to its spirited effect. These were genuine wooden and iron implements, and were prominently disposed round about the figure. A bundle of nails, the hammer to drive them, the sponge, the reed that supported it, the cup of vinegar, the ladder for the ascent of the cross, the spear that pierced the Saviour's side. The crown of thorns was made of real thorns, and was nailed to the sacred head. In some Italian church paintings, even by the old masters, the Saviour and the Virgin wear silver or gilded crowns that are fastened to the pictured head with nails. The effect is as grotesque as it is incongruous. Here and there, on the fronts of roadside inns, we found huge, coarse frescoes of suffering martyrs like those in the shrines. It could not have diminished their sufferings any to be so uncouthly represented. We were in the heart and home of priestcraft, of a happy, cheerful, contented ignorance, superstition, degradation, poverty, indolence, and everlasting uninspiring worthlessness. And we said fervently, it suits these people precisely. Let them enjoy it, along with the other animals, and heaven forbid that they be molested. We feel no malice toward these fumigators. We passed through the strangest, funniest, undreamt of old towns, wedded to the customs and steeped in the dreams of the elder ages, and perfectly unaware that the world turns round, and perfectly indifferent, too, as to whether it turns around or stands still. They have nothing to do but eat and sleep and sleep and eat, and toil a little when they can get a friend to stand by and keep them awake. They are not paid for thinking. They are not paid to fret about the world's concerns. They were not respectable people. They were not worthy people. They were not learned and wise and brilliant people. But in their breasts, all their stupid lives long, resteth a peace that passeth understanding. How can men calling themselves men consent to be so degraded and happy? We whisked by many a grey old medieval castle, clad thick with ivy that swung its green banners down from towers and turrets where once some old crusader's flag had floated. The driver pointed to one of these ancient fortresses and said, I translate, Do you see that great iron hook that projects from the wall just under the highest window in the ruined tower? We said we could not see it at such a distance, but had no doubt it was there. Well, he said, there is a legend connected with that iron hook. Nearly seven hundred years ago, that castle was the property of the noble Count Luigi Gerano Guido Alfonso de Genova. What was his other name? said Dan. He had no other name. 
The name I have spoken was all the name he had. He was the son of poor but honest parents. That is all right. Never mind the particulars. Go on with the legend. The legend. Well, then, all the world at that time was in a wild excitement about the Holy Sepulchre. All the great feudal lords in Europe were pledging their lands and pawning their plate to fit out men-at-arms, so that they might join the grand armies of Christendom and win renown in the holy wars. The Count Luigi raised money, like the rest, and one mild September morning, armed with battle-axe, portcullis, and thundering culverin, he rode through the greaves and bucklers of his donjon-keep with as gallant a troop of Christian bandits as ever stepped in Italy. He had his sword, Excalibur, with him. His beautiful countess and her young daughter waved him a tearful adieu from the battering rams and buttresses of the fortress, and he galloped away with a happy heart. He made a raid on a neighboring baron, and completed his outfit with the booty secured. He then raised the castle to the ground, massacred the family, and moved on. They were hardly fellows in the grand old days of chivalry. Alas! those days will never come again. Count Luigi grew high in fame in Holy Land. He plunged into the carnage of a hundred battles, but his good Excalibur always brought him out alive, albeit often sorely wounded. His face became browned by exposure to the Syrian sun in long marches. He suffered hunger and thirst. He pined in prisons. He languished in loathsome plague hospitals. And many and many a time he thought of his loved ones at home, and wondered if all was well with them. But his heart said, Peace! Is not thy brother watching over thy household? Forty-two years waxed and waned. The good fight was won. Godfrey reigned in Jerusalem. The Christian hosts reared the banner of the cross above the holy sepulchre. Twilight was approaching. Fifty harlequins, in flowing robes, approached this castle wearily, for they were on foot, and the dust upon their garments beckoned that they had travelled far. They overtook a peasant, and asked him if it were likely they could get food and hospital bed there, for love of Christian charity, and if perchance a moral parlour entertainment might meet with generous countenance. For, said they, this exhibition hath no feature that could offend the most fastidious taste. Marry, quoth the peasant, and it please your worships, ye had better journey many a good rood hence with your juggling circus than trust your bones in yonder castle. How now, sirrah, exclaimed the chief monk, explain thy rival speech, or by your lady it shall go hard with thee. Peace, good mountebank, I did but utter the truth that was in my heart. San Paolo be my witness, that did ye but find the stout Count Leonardo in his cups, sheer from the castle's topmost battlements would he hurl ye all. Alackaday, the good Lord Luigi reigns not here in these sad times. The good Lord Luigi? Ay, none other, please your worship. In his day the poor rejoiced in plenty, and the rich he did oppress. Taxes were not known. The fathers of the church waxed fat upon his bounty. Travellers went and came with none to interfere, and whosoever would might tarry in his halls in cordial welcome, and eat his bread and drink his wine withal. But woe is me, some two and forty years agone, the good Count rode hence to fight for Holy Cross, and many a year hath flown since word or token have we had of him. Men say his bones lie bleaching in the fields of Palestine. And now? Now? God a mercy, the cruel Leonardo lords it in the castle. He wrings taxes from the poor. He robs all travellers that journey by his gates. He spends his days in feuds and murders, and his nights in revel and debauch. He roasts the fathers of the church upon his kitchen spits, and enjoyeth the same calling it pastime. 
these thirty years luigi's countess hath not been seen by any in all this land and many whisper that she pines in the dungeons of the castle for that she will not wed with leonardo saying her dear lord still liveth and that she will die ere she prove false to him they whisper likewise that her daughter is a prisoner as well nay good jugglers seek ye refreshment otherwheres twere better that ye perished in a christian way than that ye plunged from off yon dizzy tower give ye good day god keep ye gentle knave farewell but heedless of the peasant's warning the players moved straightway toward the castle word was brought to count leonardo that a company of mountainbacks besought his hospitality tis well dispose of them in the customary manner yet stay i have need of them let them come hither later cast them from the battlements or how many priests have ye on hand the day's results are meagre good my lord an abbot and a dozen beggarly friars is all we have hell and furies is the estate going to seed send hither the mountebanks afterward broil them with the priests the robed and close-cowled harlequins entered the grim leonardo sate in the state at the head of his council board ranged up and down the hall on either side stood near a hundred men-at-arms ha villains quoth the count what can ye do to earn the hospitality ye crave dread lord and mighty crowded audience have greeted our humble efforts with rapturous applause among our body count we the versatile and talented ugolino the justly celebrated rodolfo the gifted and accomplished roderigo the management have spared neither pains nor expense sdeath what can ye do curb thy prating tongue good my lord in acrobatic feats in practice with the dumbbells in balancing and ground and lofty tumbling are reversed and sith your highness asketh me i venture here to publish that in the truly marvellous and entertaining zampilero station gag him throttle him body of bacchus am i a dog that i am to be assailed with this polysyllable blasphemy like to this but hold lucretia isabel stand forth sirrah behold this dame this weeping wench the first i marry within the hour the other shall dry her tears or feed the vultures thou and thy vagabond shall crown the wedding with thy merry-makings fetch hither the priest the dame sprang toward the chief player oh save me she cried save me from a fate far worse than death behold these sad eyes these sunken cheeks this withered frame see thou the wreck this fiend hath made and let thy heart be moved with pity look upon this damoiselle note her wasted form her halting step her bloomless cheeks where youth should blush and happiness exult in smiles hear us and have compassion this monster was my husband's brother he who should have been our shield against all harm hath kept us shut within the noisome caverns of his donjon keep for lo these thirty years and for what crime none other than i would not belie my troth root out my strong love for him who marches with the legions of the cross in holy land for oh he is not dead and wed with him save us oh save thy persecuted suppliants she flung herself at his feet and clasped his knees ha 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 shouted the brutal leonardo priest to thy work and he dragged the weeping dame from her refuge say once for all will you be mine for by my halidome that breath that uttereth thy refusal shall be thy last on earth never then die and the sword leapt from his scabbard 
quicker than thought, quicker than the lightning's flash, fifty monkish habits disappeared, and fifty knights in splendid armor stood revealed. Fifty falchions gleamed in air above the men-at-arms, and brighter fearsome than them all flamed Excalibur aloft, and cleaving downward struck the brutal Leonardo's weapon from his grasp. Ah, Luigi to the rescue! Whoop! Ah, Leonardo! Tear an ounce! Oh, God! Oh, God! My husband! Oh, God! Oh, God! My wife! My father! My precious! Tableau. Count Luigi bound his usurping brother hand and foot. The practiced knights from Palestine made holy-day sport of carving the awkward men-at-arms into chops and steaks. The victory was complete. Happiness reigned. The knights all married the daughter. Joy! Wassail! Finis! But what did they do with the wicked brother? Oh, nothing, only hanged him on that iron hook I was speaking of, by the chin. As how? Passed it up through his gills into his mouth. Leave him there? Couple of years. Ah, is—is he dead? Six hundred and fifty years ago, or such a matter. Splendid legend, splendid lie. Drive on. We reached the quaint old fortified city of Bergamo, renowned in history some three-quarters of an hour before the train was ready to start. The place has thirty or forty thousand inhabitants, and is remarkable for being the birthplace of Harlequin. When we discovered that, that legend of our driver took to itself a new interest in our eyes. Rested and refreshed, we took the rail happy and contented. I shall not tarry to speak of the handsome Lago di Gardi, its stately castle that holds in its stony bosom the secrets of an age so remote that even tradition goeth not back to it, the imposing mountain scenery that ennobles the landscape thereabouts, nor yet of ancient Padua or haughty Verona, nor of their Montagues and Capulets, their famous balconies and tombs of Juliet and Romeo et al but hurry straight to the ancient city of the sea, the widowed bride of the Adriatic. It was a long, long ride, but toward evening, as we sat silent and hardly conscious of where we were, subdued into that meditative calm that comes so surely after a conversational storm, someone shouted, Venice! And sure enough, afloat on the placid sea a league away, lay a great city, with its towers and domes and steeples drowsing in a golden mist of sunset. End of chapter 21